When you're searching for a fertility specialist or treatment, I assume you've done a bit of research. Maybe you've consulted your primary care doctor or spent a night scrolling on WebMD. But there's a couple things you probably should be asking to figure out the best course of action for you and your partner. Today, we're going over questions that patients should be asking, but don't, with Drs. Molina Dial and Dr. Maureen Schulte. This is All Things Fertility. I'm your host, Caitlin White. So starting with number one, I'll open it up to you again, Dr. Dial. How much time do we really have to try on our own before seeing a specialist? Well, it's, that's not a very simple, on some levels, that is a very simple question to answer, but on others, it's not very simple. You know, traditionally, we, we diagnose infertility for women who are younger than 35 after they've been attempting pregnancy for about a year without any conception. And for women who are 35 and above, we say, please try for about six months before you seek a specialist care. And while those definitions are the official definitions of infertility, oftentimes we'll say, you know, does it make sense to be seen sooner? You know, so if an individual or a partner might have known issues that would impact their ability to conceive, so perhaps they've had pelvic surgery, perhaps they've had pelvic inflammatory disease like chlamydia or gonorrhea when they were younger and we worry about their fertility potential, or if somebody's had radiation or chemotherapy, or it's just a variety of different things that, you know, that we really want people to seek care for, you know, before that 12-month period or that six-month period. But if you have to use a strict definition, it's if you're younger than 35, wait about a year. That's assuming you have regular cycles and no other factor that I mentioned before. And if you're 35 and above, you know, try at most for about six months. Otherwise, like some, some couples have already sought care elsewhere, meaning that they've started seeing their primary GYN to have fertility treatments done. And if those don't work after one or two attempts, then it makes a lot of sense to see a specialist as well. So jumping over to Dr. Schulte, what type of doctor should I be seeing? So on your initial journey, when you're attempting to start building your family, seeing your general OBGYN for what we call preconception counseling is a great idea. And that's just to make sure that your immunizations are up to date and that you're taking prenatal vitamins. But then when you've been trying for six months or if you know that you could have a tubal blockage because you have a history of multiple surgeries or a history of sexually transmitted infections in the past, you really want to go to an infertility specialist who has done a fellowship in reproductive endocrinology and infertility. And so what that is, it's subspecialty training after physicians complete their OBGYN specialty training, there's an additional three years at an academic institution that are completed in just infertility and reproductive endocrinology. And really there, the skills for in vitro fertilization and doing you know, assisted reproductive technologies are honed. So you want to make sure that you're seeing physicians who are trained in reproductive endocrinology and infertility. All right. So question number four, and again, this is questions that people aren't asking. So this is something I guess I've never really thought to ask before, but how much experience does your lab staff have? Why is that something that's important? 
Oh, yeah, that's a great question. That's a great question. Yeah. And it's super, super important because a lot of our success rates in our field are based on the lab. You know, I, you know, again, our, our field is one of the very few in medicine that combines the clinical side with a laboratory side. And I think it's really important to always know, well, you know, what's their educational background, how much sort of practical knowledge do they have, and how long they've actually been working in the lab. So they all have to have a lab director, and that individual is usually a PhD. So they've gone beyond the master's degree, and they've gone on to have a PhD, and they typically, those individuals will oversee the lab, and they develop what we call protocols and procedures in order for like every single sort of treatment that, that occurs for any sort of sample, whether it's eggs or sperm that are being, that are being handled. And then there are also several people in the lab who are embryologists. They typically have master's degrees. And for this, what's interesting about embryologists is that there is a learning curve. You know, I think at the beginning, you know, most of these individuals have been trained in a different type of laboratory, oftentimes in animal labs, where they're handling sperm and eggs from animals. And what's interesting is that it's somewhat similar to humans in terms of how you handle them, but of course the procedures and protocols are going to be very, very different. But there's certainly a learning curve for those individuals. So typically the longer these individuals have been using their hands, so to speak, the more likely it is for them to do very, very well. The other things that should be looked at from a laboratory standpoint are their certifications, which I know is a little bit separate from looking at lab staff, but there are certain certifications that are done in order to make sure that a lab is up to par or up to standards within the industry. So those those are all really important things to look at. Great. Yeah, I guess you never think about, you know, all the testing has to get sent somewhere and someone has to do the testing. No, exactly. Absolutely. I mean, they're the ones who they're yeah. the mag- magicians. Yeah, it's it's huge and it is a a very large component to what we do. And unfortunately, patients don't really realize that when they are, you know, seeking out mm-hmm. care. So we're very fortunate because our lab is amazing and they're wonderful humans as well. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're fortunate, but that's not the case everywhere. And it's a it's a very large part of in vitro fertilization. All right. So, Dr. Schulte, our next question, I can kind of see why this one isn't asked as much because it might be something a patient doesn't want to bring up, but what is the effect of recreational drugs on fertility? Ooh, yes. Recreational drugs do impact fertility. So we know that cigarette smoking decreases sperm counts and can age our ovaries. So essentially diminish the amount of follicles that house eggs. So diminish the amount of follicles that we have in our ovary and basically advance us to menopause quicker. Marijuana also has been shown to decrease sperm counts. And that's really more habitual use. And they're still doing studies on, you know, short-term use or, or, you know, use in, you know, your college years versus now. But from a habitual standpoint, if, if people are you know, using marijuana daily for multiple years, it can impact the sperm counts. They're, they're studying the effect on the ovary now at this point. 
So that's the effect of recreational drugs on fertility. I was going to say the one interesting thing also just about recreational drugs, you know, so the main ones are the ones that Mo was discussing. It's like the smoking, marijuana and sort of thing. And what's interesting about smoking in particular is, you know, there is, you know, definitely good evidence that, you know, there's decreased fertility and actually a slight increased chance of miscarriage if you're a heavy smoker. But then it's also interesting is that even if you slow down smoking or stop smoking altogether, a lot of the damage has been done. And I'm not saying, okay, if you're smoking, don't stop smoking. You should definitely try to stop just from a general health standpoint. But it, it's additive, you know, that, you know, you have, you've already had that exposure. And, you know, if you decrease that, it might improve things, but you're still already, you've already decreased your follicular pool. And there's, I think, no, I think there's some studies coming out looking at secondhand smoke as well, that I think it's going to be somewhat similar, which is interesting. You would, you know, it, it kind of makes sense, but we just kind of don't think about yeah, that. Yeah, just seeing it literally on paper, you're like, oh, okay, I guess. All right, so question number six, Dr. Dial, the effect of male testosterone supplementation on fertility. Why is this important? Male testosterone supplementation is really bad on fertility. Okay. Exactly, exactly. So what's yeah. interesting is that, you know, we, we often do see men come in and they say that they're, you know, taking a little bit of testosterone and it could be because they've had maybe decreased energy, they're lethargic, maybe their libido has been decreased, perhaps their sexual function has changed. And what testosterone does is it does the exact opposite of what you'd expect it to do for fertility. So if we kind of think about how the testes and testosterone are produced, you know, like testes are functioning to make both sperm and testosterone, what happens is that it's supposed to be your brain that controls all of that. Kind of like in women, the brain controls when follicles or eggs are being produced, the same thing for men. And so there's a certain number of amount of testosterone that's made in order to maintain sperm production. But if a man starts taking testosterone, your body thinks that you have enough of it. So then you stop, you slow everything down. So then you actually stop making sperm. I don't know if that makes sense. It's kind of like a, it's a feedback loop in a way. So if, if a man is exposed to testosterone, they'll stop producing sperm and at least the nice thing is it's not a permanent effect. So if that individual stops taking testosterone, their sperm counts will eventually come back, but it'll be a minimum of three months. Usually it'll be almost up to six months before you'll see a uh, significant improvement. So anybody out there who wants to get pregnant, please do not take testosterone. Please. All right, so the next question, kind of even before we hit fertility, Dr. Schulte, how much sex should we be having in order to get pregnant? I guess, is there a number? There is, there is. I'm laughing because you just wrote a prescription today. I did! Get out of yeah, here. So we, we have too much fun here, but so I always joke around with my patients that I'm always the husband's favorite doctor because <laughs> I'm always like prescribing intercourse. And so one of my patients today said he wants a prescription for that. So I literally <laughs> wrote a prescription um, for sex today, which was just really fun. So she that was really get home to him. But no, actually, so intercourse is really important, obviously, when trying to get pregnant. And timed intercourse is really what we worry about. So when you're trying to conceive, if you have normal cycles, 
there's really only six days out of the month where you can conceive. So it's the five days before ovulation and then the day of ovulation. So for everybody out there who's tracking their cycles, your LH kit, your ovulation predictor kit, is going to turn positive 24 to 48 hours before ovulation. And that's why it's a great test because it tells you when you should be having sex. So as long as you're having sex the day your kit is positive, you're hitting that fertile window, that six days when you can conceive. So, but I have a lot of patients who say, I don't want to mess around with ovulation predictor kits. It's too much. It stresses me out. I recommend then sex every other day and so that you know you're going to hit your window. But for those, you know, who are traveling and if they're in a different area than their partner, it it can be difficult. So tracking your cycles and really knowing when you're going to ovulate. And so you can do this by writing it out on a calendar um, because the second half of your cycle is fixed. So if you, you know, mark the first day of your period, which is the first day of full bleeding, and then the next month you write down the first day of your period, you count backwards two weeks from that first day, and that's the day that you ovulated. So then it'll help you the next month have an idea of what's normal. So you can do it that way, or you can go to the you know grocery store and get ovulation predictor kits. They also sell them on Amazon. Now everybody's going to Amazon.com. <laughs> <laughs> so with that, though, I mean, we know the days but is there an amount on those days? Is that more of just a couple's preference? Oh, yeah. No, that's that's great. That's a great question. So from an amount standpoint, right, so so there are multiple million, millions and millions of sperm in the ejaculate. So the ejaculate is really made up of sperm and semen, which is all the nutrients and content from the seminal vesicle that gets that kind of gets packaged around the sperm. And so, you know, when you're having intercourse, you're depositing millions of sperm into the vagina as long as your partner's sperm counts are normal. And then they have to swim their way up the uterus and into the fallopian tube. So only about 200 sperm are actually making it into that fallopian tube from the multiple millions. So around, yeah, it is crazy. Around the time of ovulation, I I say that, you know, at least once a day, and if you want to have sex more often, there's no harm. It may or may not benefit you. So because the other thing we have to think about is, you know, daily ejaculation in a man who has normal sperm counts does not decrease his sperm counts. However, if there's any abnormality, we could you know, we could decrease that sperm count because spermatogenesis or the making of sperm takes about three months fully. And so, you know, it's stored, so it's there, but the counts could just be lower. So one to two times a day for a simple answer. I feel like it's so wild that I am 29 years old and know none of this. Like, I know. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Do not worry. You are not the only one. I mean, yeah. Melina and I went to school for, you know, we trained for 11 years. To of be course, to, yeah really be able to explain this. So, I mean, and, and people, you know, 
when we talk about the sperm and egg meeting and forming an embryo in the fallopian tube, people's minds are blown. Blown. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. So It's just so interesting. It's like, you know, it's stuff that, you know, we all do and whatnot. And it's just such a mystery for the most part, unless you really go out and seek the information, right? You know, I guess these are the questions right. that people aren't asking. So that's why we're not knowing. All right. We'll do one more here. We'll do, how about when should couples seek counseling? I'm sure that's probably, you know, it's not brought up because it's probably something people don't really want to be asking or want to even know the answer. But I guess, why is that good to ask early on? And then when is that kind of moment to pull the trigger? I think with when it comes to seeking counseling, it tends to be sort of a, on an individualized basis. I mean, I, we, Mo and I see patients all the time who come in and you can see, that, you know, perhaps they've had multiple miscarriages. And, you know, with, with miscarriages, there's a lot of guilt and there's a lot of blame that is felt. And, and it's usually, in fact, it's almost never because there's something that that individual did. And it's so hard to sometimes explain that to a couple um, or to a patient. And so oftentimes when couples come in with multiple miscarriages, I will offer that up even if I can't really even get that sense from them because I'll say, look, there's a lot you're going through. Each loss is, is a major loss, you know, and, and that sadness that can come from it or perhaps it's the guilt or perhaps it's being blamed and whatever the situation is, I think it's always important for individuals to seek counseling in that situation, but also couples because sometimes that can be extraordinarily taxing and stressful to a couple. And I've seen many, many relationships really suffer without that open communication that can occur with counseling. I also will recommend it from a fertility or infertility perspective as well. Same sort of issues that can come up, you know, that, you know, what's interesting is there are many studies that have come out that have shown that the stress that a woman feels undertaking a fertility treatment is very similar to what individuals feel who are undertaking chemotherapy. It's like a very, if you just kind of look at their stress levels on a very objective scale, they're very, very similar. And so I tend to send, or at least recommend or mention it to many, many patients who come through the door because we don't know long-term, like what could happen, you know, could it affect them long-term? Could it affect their relationship long-term? And I think if anything, I tend to recommend it very, very quickly because I want them to be in a good place as they move forward. And I think it also helps give them a sense of sort of understanding where, where their feelings are. And it definitely opens up communication. So the theme of this episode was questions that patients should be asking but don't. And just to wrap up, can you talk about the importance of being open and honest with your doctors? Oh, yeah. I think that when you sit down with any physician, you know, physician are, physicians are educators. And, you know, one of the greatest joys of our job is really just to get to teach couples and women about their bodies and fertility like in general. Me. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, it, it's so fun. And what's nice about it is we get an hour to discuss and tailor, mm -hmm. you know, our educational talks to the patient. So there is no silly question. So any question that you have, and trust me, we have heard them all, and, and I really take every single one of them sort of to heart 
and and provide you know an answer because it's weighing on your mind. This fertility journey is hard enough, so you know you should feel comfortable asking everything and being honest. I know that you know my friends and family sometimes are silly. They'll call me and say, "You know, Mo, I didn't tell my doctor this." <laughs> <laughs> You should have. Exactly. Yeah, because they're only there to help you. Mm -hmm. And there's no judgment. Like, they're only there to help you. And we want the best for the patient and, you know, to help them achieve their goal. So the more that we know, the easier of a time it's going to be and the better treatment you're going to get. So, you know, I don't think that the doctor's office is a place where you should you know, hold back your questions because you think they're too silly. They definitely are not. Absolutely. Absolutely. Ditto. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> All right. The Mo Show. <laughs> <laughs> Well, another great episode, just chock full of information. Thank you both again so much. To learn more about the team at SIRM St. Louis or to schedule an appointment, visit stlouisfertilitycenter.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, find more like it in our podcast library and be sure to give us a like and a follow if you do. This has been All Things Fertility and I'm your host, Caitlin White. We'll catch you next time.